Well, hello and welcome back to our study of the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 8 today. Now, we've, we've uh, seen a picture of heaven. We have seen uh, these uh, in chapters you know, 5 and 6, uh, this book with the seven seals, and the Lamb opens it, and we've read about the seals and what they mean and what they represent about what's coming for the people who are hearing this. Then we see another little image of heaven and those who are there, uh, the saints uh, who, who live, uh, dwell with God after their life. And now we get to the seventh seal, uh, and it is something pretty dramatic, as most of this has been. But chapter 8 is equally as dramatic as chapter 7, and we're dealing now with, with trumpets. We've got some trumpets that are a part of this seventh seal, and we're going to begin reading in chapter 8. Let's look there. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw seven angels, again the perfect number, right? Seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, uh, is this seven angels? Well, no, remember numbers convey meaning in Semitic culture. And the seven here, it, it just means it was the perfect number. It was exactly the number God needed to get the job done. That's who it was. It was seven angels. It was the perfect number of angels. It was the right balance. It was God's perfect angels tasked for the job, right? So these seven angels are handed seven trumpets. We had seven seals, and the final seal is seven more trumpets. So another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and earthquake. Wow, dramatic language there. Now we have here this incense and remember this aroma. These are the prayers. These are the prayers of Christians. These are the prayers of faithful people that are, are, are waiting to be heard. But we have this silence. In these first six verses, we have this silence. And I think that that's something that we have to understand and get used to. You know, when we look back at chapter 7 and we see these seals being open, we see a, a bit of an interlude there. Uh, in fact, it's labeled as such in some, some versions of, of your Bibles. There might be a, as an interlude. That was actually very common in theater and in the, the works of drama of the day that they would give a bit of a break. Uh, we still do it today in our arts, in, in, in movies and in TV. When something's very heavy, there's always an element of comic relief. You gotta, you gotta release a little, you gotta laugh a little. So this was pretty, um, pretty common. And the message that we see in chapter seven is all God's children will be saved. But there is this great tribulation, right, that is talked about. And, and people deal with, well, what is the tribulation? And when is it? And, you know, and all of that stuff. Uh, I, I wouldn't take that too literally. There's going to be troublesome time, and it will end. It will end. That's the message of chapter 7 moving into chapter 8, because God's got us. God has us in his hand. But we see silence as we open chapter 8. And silence is a bit of a metaphor here, because God is often silent. But he is not silent because there is a lack of action. God is deliberate. He is thoughtful. In fact, it's something that sets him apart from other gods that we read about, other gods that have been worshipped in history. 
uh, they are active. They move. They do these grand things. They're loud. God sometimes is silent. Sometimes he moves slowly. Sometimes he moves carefully because our God is different. You can look back historically and see this. Look at creation. When we read the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1, what we're reading is a bit of poetry. It's a bit of ancient poetry. Now, uh, I know there's debate about how literal the story of creation is and how figurative it is, and I, I can just say this. I believe what the Bible says. I believe that God created the earth. I believe he spoke it into existence. He formed man with his own hands. As to how literal that is, I, I don't know. The words were given to Moses or whoever wrote it down first, and it was, it was recopied and recopied, and we have it today, and thank God that we do because it's a beautiful story. But if you've ever heard of the saga of Gilgamesh, that story is even more meaningful to you. Because the saga of Gilgamesh was a Mesopotamian uh, myth, legend, about how the world was created, about how this world came to be. And it's very loud, and it, there's uh, fights between gods, and there's dragons, and there's things, and things are blowing up, and, and, and we are here by accident because these big powers were fighting. It's very chaotic. It's very happenstance. But then we see Genesis. And the point of that story is not how many days it took. Or all those are important things. But understand, God told this to someone so they could write it down. Do you think he explained quantum physics and, and biology and chemistry? No. He told it in a way they could understand, much like Revelation is written, and they wrote it down. Did God do it? I believe he did. But what's the point? If we get too busy arguing about that, we miss the point. The point is that the rest of the world said we're all an accident and it was too, it was God's fighting and things were being thrown about and here we are, boom. And God said, no, I took my time. I made what I intended to make and I made you. You see, our God is deliberate. And in scripture, the uh, the response that we are supposed to have to seeing behind the curtain is awe and worship. So don't get too hung up on the silence here and all, and what we're seeing in, in a literal sense. Understand, God is about to move. He's about to act, and the universe better get ready for him. And so in the meantime, there's some silence. In the meantime, it's going to be quiet for a little bit, and God is going to sit, and he's going to, to, to be deliberate in his action and even in silence, uh, we need to understand that our response to God should be awe and worship. Um, if we do that enough, then we will respond that way even in the silence. So now seven angels show up here in verse 6. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. All right. And now these, again, seven is the perfect number. They're handpicked by God. It's the ones who are for the job. Now this is a dramatic move that's about to take place here because we go from complete silence to something very loud, very noticeable. It's going to be a booming sound that's going to come out of these seven trumpets. And so it's a big contrast. It's a big shift. And you want to remember that moving from verse 6, the first six verses into verse 7. This is going to be a big, big change here. Okay, so a dramatic move. Now, there, there seems, there's another angel here. We've got the seven angels with the, the trumpets, but there's another one that's carrying this incense and carrying the prayers of, uh, of, of others. And it, it could be, and there's some argument on this, 
uh, he's carrying the prayers of the deceased as well. Now, this is a big uh, point of doctrine in the Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic faith, and I'm not knocking Roman Catholicism at all. The language allows for it to be that he's carrying the prayers of the deceased, but they pray uh, to saints, to those who have died, uh, and they offer their prayer to them that, because who's around the throne? Remember, in Revelation, who's around the throne? The saints. They're right there by the throne. So they offer their prayers to certain saints, and then those saints carry those prayers to God. That's their belief. I might have some doctrinal disagreement on that, some theological disagreement on that, but um, but that's what they believe. And here is where we see that image. That's where this comes from. So the point is that God hears and sees and smells our prayer. He, he, he takes it in with all of his senses, what it is that we have to bring him. Our prayers have a lot to do with what happens next. Now think about that. Our prayers have a lot to do with what happens next. Does that mean that we direct God? No, no, God is God. We're not. But our prayer can make God move. Our prayer can persuade God. God is open to being persuaded by our prayer. Now, that's a scary thing because if we know that's possible and then he doesn't move the way we want him to, we can allow that to damage our faith. doesn't have to. doesn't have to at all. But it is scary because sometimes prayers aren't answered the way we want. Prayers are not designed to keep us from dying. Okay, that's going to happen. We're on our way there. There are some things that prayer won't take away because look at Revelation. The prayers are being offered as this aroma to God, but there's still some things coming that are going to be hard. There's still some tough times coming. So we, we pray about righteousness and justice and peace, and he hears those things, and he brings those things. So understand that sometimes your prayer is not going to be it's not going to result in God moving the way you want, but sometimes it will. And we continue to pray for those things because we know God moves. And we know that we can do that. And sometimes he moves after a bit of silence. Sometimes he moves after a bit of silence. So we have angels with trumpets now. It's important to remember these are not musical instruments, okay? These are weapons. These are wartime instruments. They're blown to advance troops and retreat and move to the left and to the right and to announce the coming of enemies or, or whatever. So they're a communicative tool, all right? And they are loud. They are piercing. They are startling, in fact. So the angels begin to sound their trumpets, and we start in verse 7, and let's read from there. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. I'm going to read straight through these, and then we'll come back. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Okay. Whew, take a deep breath. Get up, walk around, 
stretch a little bit. That's some scary stuff. That's some confusing stuff. That's challenging. But these are warnings. These are warnings. This trumpet is blowing to announce something, and these things are coming. These are warnings that those who persecute God's children will not go unpunished. Those who persecute God's people are going to be hurt. They're going to be damaged. Now, they're not going to be destroyed, but they're going to be hurt enough to pay attention. So God is firing warning shots. Yeah, these are warning shots. It could get worse. It will be worse. This is a warning. Think about the ten plagues. You remember the story? Israelites or Hebrews are held captive in slavery in Egypt, and Pharaoh's holding them, and Moses says, let them go. And Pharaoh says no. And the ten plagues were brought about in order to persuade Pharaoh to let them go. Uh, God was trying to hurt Pharaoh just enough to let Israel go. But Pharaoh persisted in his stubbornness, and eventually God said, okay, fine, then it's time for Pharaoh to go. He persisted enough in his stubbornness. He rejected God's warning enough that God eventually said, I don't want him to change his mind. Now, remember the, the, the scripture says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. God actually hardened Pharaoh's heart because he said, no, you have opposed me long enough. I gave you warning after warning, and now I'm not going to let you escape this. It's time for Pharaoh to be done away with. And that's what happened. So we need to understand that God... God was done with Pharaoh. God is done with the persecutors, and they need to go. Justice requires that. Um, and this is similar to those plagues. God is patient, but he is just. God is way more patient, I think, than I am with other people. And, and yet I always want him to be more patient with me than he is with other people, right? I, I need God's patience. I need his love. I need his grace. And sometimes when God seems to not be moving fast enough, we need to understand that sometimes he's being patient with someone else. And that's okay. That's okay. Now, some people have tried to look through these events that are described here in chapter 8 and go back to history and say, ah, well, it's this thing and that thing and the other thing. This is what happened, right? It's not very helpful to do that, and there's a number of reasons why. Number one is we don't have good history. We don't have good documentation of some of the things that have happened. The other thing is these are signs and symbols, okay? They're not, we're not meant to pinpoint certain things in history, and no one can really agree on what they are. So it's kind of fruitless to do that. And it's also important to remember the audience, the people who heard this. And again, they would have heard it. They would have heard it spoken. Yeah, copies were made and passed around, but they oftentimes heard it. They wouldn't have read it, not the way we do. And so what we do is we read it and we try to go find out what this means or what that was. But they got it, and, and they didn't run off looking for certain things to happen. They, they understood signs and symbols. And we're going to understand that how language is used, and they use language the way we use language. Okay, So let's break down some of these things. Let's go uh, one through, uh, through four of these angels. And the first, uh, the first trumpet, look there in verse 7. Okay. We see fire and hail and blood coming down. Now, almost always, this represents a judgment from heaven. Okay, You see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. You see it in other biblical accounts. This is almost always symbolizing a judgment from heaven. And again, notice a third. 
a third is going to crop up in every single one of these. That The damage is going to be on a third. That means that it's enough to disrupt. It's not to destroy. It is enough to disrupt. It's enough to change the way of life. Remember we talked a couple of chapters ago about COVID. If you look at the statistics of COVID and you see how many people have gotten sick and how many people have died, and we mourn every death uh, because we've all lost someone we know or someone close to us or had someone get gravely ill. Um, we've all experienced that through this pandemic. And so we, we take that seriously and we mourn it. But when you look at the numbers and the statistics, it's, it's, it's not dramatic compared to other pandemics. Um, and it certainly is very clear that it affects certain people more than others. And yet, it has totally disrupted and changed our lives in almost two years. Okay, a third doesn't literally mean 33%. It means enough to cause some trouble, enough to be noticed. All right, so we have judgment from heaven coming down. That's the hell, uh, excuse me, the hail and the fire, right? Now, the second trumpet sounds in something like a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea. Okay, what are these mountains and what is the sea and what does that mean? Well, we can look elsewhere in Scripture and understand some things about mountains. Let's look at Psalm 125 for a moment. Because mountains are often used in Semitic language and in biblical language to represent something of power and very often a government. Look at Psalm 125, verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. Okay, we're talking about a power, a government perhaps, and in this case, in Psalm 125, it is God's government, okay? And, and it will reign forever, okay? God's established authority is there, and he's going to protect his people like Mount Zion. Mountains were symbols of government, of power. And the sea are the nations, the people. So we have a mountain that's on fire, and it's thrown into the sea. This is the falling of a great nation. This is the destruction of a great nation. Governments will fall, but they won't fall all at once. And in fact, Rome itself took probably hundreds of years to fall. It was constantly stepping forward, stepping back, stepping back, stepping forward. It was hundreds of years. Um, and there is often when rebellion happens, when coup, when overthrow, when war, nations begin to crumble, governments begin to fall. They're thrown to the sea, not destroyed all at once. They will fall slowly sometimes, but they will fall. Okay, now uh, let's go to the third angel here, beginning in verse 10. So the mountain's thrown into the sea, and again, we see thirds. We see a third of life destroyed. We see a third of the, you know, the, the creatures destroyed and the ships destroyed. So there's destruction that comes with the falling of a nation. All right, third angel. Sounds the trumpet, and a great star falls from heaven. And then we have it fall on the water, and it's called wormwood, and it poisons everything. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, you may not have ever heard of wormwood, but wormwood is a thing. It's a, it's a very, very, very bitter herb. We don't even use it. You've probably never said, hmm, this needs some wormwood. Let me. No, uh, it's, it's not a thing that we do. But it, it does exist. It's real. 
Um, C.S. Lewis, of course, used this in, in the screw tape letters uh, as a name. But wormwood is an herb. It's a very bitter herb. Um, don't get hung up on what wormwood is or who it is. Remember that star. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about stars. The stars represent the people that are in power or the people that we hold in high regard, the powerful, the influential, all of that. Okay, that's the star. And before you think that, oh, we, we don't do that today, oh, yes, we do. Oh, yes, we do. Politicians and actors and singers and everything. We have stars. We call them stars. We're dancing with the stars. And none of those people are actually stars that are on that show. Um, but that's what we call it because they're stars. And so here a star falls from heaven. So a powerful person, something powerful is brought down. And when it comes down, it spreads bitterness and poison and ugliness all around it and is disruptive and destructive. We elevate people all the time. We elevate people who then use their celebrity to destroy the things that matter to us. They attack God. They attack family. They attack um, values with when it comes to marriage. They attack all of the things that we care about. And yet we elevate them. And when they fall, and they will, that poison and that bitterness seeps out and it can take you with it. If you love your celebrities too much, you can be dragged down with them when they do fall. And they will. All of them. Don't let them poison you. Don't let them poison what's around you. Um... I don't listen to a lot of modern music. My taste is about 40 years older than I am. But I have children. And I don't, you know, some of you younger people who might watch this would know. I don't know anything about Cardi B. All right. I don't know these musicians. But I do know a song that came out in the last year or so from her that is so vulgar. It can't, like, you can't even read the lyrics on television. It's so vulgar that if it was censored, there would be no song left. And many of you may know which what I'm referring to, but it speaks of such unabashed sexual uh, indulgence and debauchery and wanton desire and, and things like that. And not to sound like old man Derek here complaining, but it's concerning because here is a woman of influence, of means, of talent, presumably. And what is the message she's spreading to the world? Little girls are dancing to this song, hearing those lyrics and thinking that's what, how a person should behave. That's how someone should live. And little boys are hearing this song and thinking that's how life is supposed to be. This star is spreading poison, and it will drag people down. When that star falls, it will poison what's around it. And that's tragic. It's very disruptive when stars fall, so we should be careful who we worship. People will be persecuted, and life will be disrupted. That's the message here. The fourth angel sounded, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars are struck, a third of them would be dark, and again, we're, we're going to see life be disrupted. We're going to see life change and be altered um, in persecution. We're going to see some, some destruction come about, but it's not going to be complete. 
it's going to be enough to cause trouble. And so the reminder here is just like the military. If you're in the military and you train you know, um, to be in combat situations, they teach you sleep when you have a chance to sleep, eat when you have a chance to eat because you don't know when the next time is going to be. That's what we're talking about here. Sleep when you have time to sleep and, and, and eat when you have time to eat because you don't know what tomorrow holds. And that's what it shows is going to be disrupting them. Okay, let's move on here to verse 13, though, because there's a warning that comes. All of a sudden, we got these four trumpets. All these things are being destroyed. All these things are being disrupted. And then John says, I looked and I heard an, an eagle flying in midheaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth. Three, by the way. Important number. Why? Three is the number of deity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here it is. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Oh my goodness. Did you read those first four trumpets? Did you read what happened? And now here is an eagle speaking with the voice of God. The woe, woe, woe clues us in that he is speaking with a warning from God and he's saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's about to get worse. So buckle up. Eat when you have food to eat. Sleep when you have time to sleep. Because you don't know what's coming next. And what's coming next is chapter 9. As we get to the final three of the seven trumpets. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks so much.